preserving the history of strategic air command, the Cold War, and aerospace artifacts. Welcome to the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. Welcome and hello again. Uh, it's the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. Deputy Director here, John Leffler Jr., as always, joined by our Director of Exhibits and Curator, Brian York. Brian, good to see you. Good to see you too, Johnny. I just saw you in the hallway just a few minutes ago, so I saw you again. Here you are now. Yes. We're, we're ready to go. We're ready to do this. Uh, before we jump in and uh, visit with our guests today, I wanted to remind you, if you have not already, to please subscribe to our podcast. Um, we're basically on all the services where you would listen, um, but you can also always find our podcast on our website, sacmuseum.org. Uh, follow us on social media as well. We'll always push out our podcast there and share them. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, you can search us at SAC Museum. That's S-A-C, SAC Museum, and find us. And one thing that we haven't mentioned that I, I did want to uh, throw out there is that we do have an app for the uh, museum as well. And if you go to your favorite mobile marketplace, SAC Museum, you can search and find that. It's a free app to download with information on all the aircraft in the museum. Also, we've got some curated maps. So for some of the different conflicts, Vietnam, World War II, uh, the Korean War, Cold War, you can see the different collections that we have and the uh, aircraft that pertain to those uh, times in our history. But with that, we want to jump in today and welcome our, uh, our special guest. Very honored to have him on board with us this afternoon for a, a conversation, retired Major General William L. Doyle Jr., Deputy Chief of Staff for Intelligence Headquarters at Strategic Air Command at Offutt Air Force Base. Joining us now, General Doyle, thank you for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Good to see both you and John and Brian. Glad to be part of this. This yeah. is a great idea doing these podcasts. Well, we appreciate you saying that. Um, and, you know, today, this is a, this is a time for Brian to, to ask you a lot of questions. You know, <laughs> he has been talking and uh, has been very excited at the prospect of having you on this podcast. And reading your biography, sir, I have to say that um, it's exhausting. You, you, have, you, have, you, you, lived it. <laughs> you, you have done a lot. But, you know, before I kind of turn it over to Brian, who's just, you know, he's got a laundry list of things that we want to jump into today. Uh, Life for you started off in Hartford, Connecticut. How did you find yourself in California, sir? My father deployed from Point Magoo, uh, which is near Oxnard, as an enlisted member of the U.S. Navy's Seabees. And my mother and I took a train uh, from Quincy, Massachusetts to uh, Oxnard. We did this three times crossing the country during the war, uh, stopping in each of those, by the way, in Omaha. But I was a young kid then, but that's how we, we went there to say goodbye before he deployed to the Pacific. Was your father's service in the Navy, was that a, a motivator, a drive for you to, uh, to enter a military service, or was it something else? That is a great leading question. And to answer that, I'd like to tell a short story that I've never told before in my life. Oh, wow. This is, well, it's your time today, so go ahead. We go back to World War II, to June of 1944, and the island of Saipan in the Pacific is under attack. It's a major location. And my father, uh, who is in his early 40s now, because he missed World War I, and he managed to enlist in the Seabees, he was on the third wave going into Saipan, carrying a Browning automatic rifle. And there was, it was a tremendous battle that took place for us to command and control that island. But, but we did. The mission of the Seabees on Saipan was to build a runway. The reason Saipan was so strategically critical was that for the first time, that placed our B-29s in a position of being able to fly missions against the Japanese homeland. That's why Saipan and Tinian was so important. So my father, called Lou Doyle, was part of the CB crew to build the runway at Saipan to hold those B-29s before they flew off to Japan. The commander of that operation was 38-year-old Major General Curtis LeMay. 
Oh, oh wow. <laughs> now, LeMay had gone from uh, being a lieutenant in 1940 to a general in 1944. Uh, he had moved up fairly quickly, but he was in charge. So there was my father, in fact, helping to build a runway on Saipan for long-range strategic bombers controlled by Curtis LeMay. I think that's a pretty interesting story, and it's one that I really didn't understand and know about till well after the war, because, of course, it was classified. So I just never forgot that. And it also was a time in the history of our country when the Cold War was really, uh, really cold. The Air Force was growing very large, very fast. In fact, when I came on board in 1955, it was the largest acquisition year in the history of the Air Force, something like 550,000 people. So I knew all those years after the war that I was going into the military, but I wasn't sure which, which part it would be. But I ended up in ROTC at uh, University of Southern California, and I changed my degree major to international relations and really started to get involved in matters Soviet and what was going on in the Cold War. So I started to immerse myself by the time I was 18 or 19, what with ROTC, I knew that my goal would be to become an officer in the Air Force, hopefully an intelligence officer, and hopefully a member of the Strategic Air Command. So by the time I was commissioned and reported for duty at Lackland at age 22, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Now, I had, as with everyone else, Past Air Force ROTC physicals had passed those and was scheduled to go to navigator school. I get to Lackland for another physical. Guess what? I needed glasses. I never worn glasses in my life. So they said, what are you going to do now there, Lieutenant? I says, well, I don't know. I want to be an intelligence officer in SAC. And whoever these personnel people were said, oh, no, no, there's no vacancy. If I go. Why don't you become a security cop? Because I, I don't want to. That's, that's how that goes. I said, well, what are we going to do with you? I said, well, I'll just hang around here at Lackland, uh, find a job, and then when an opening comes, I'll go. Well, you have a degree in international relations, so why don't you teach a couple classes at offices training, which is right there at Lackland. I said, fine. So for a few weeks, I did that. And then suddenly I had a call saying, guess what? There's an opening at Biggs Air Force Base uh, in El Paso, a huge SAC base. Had B-52s, B-47s, KC-135s, RC-50s, RB-50s, and the first strategic support squad. And I said, what is the first strategic support squad? He says, well, that's where the opening is. What do they do? Well, SAC controlled and owned all of its own atomic weapons at that point in its history. And the support squadrons maintained the weapons and transported them from base to base or wherever they needed to go. The first strategic support squadron base was one of those, and they flew C-124s. I figured, take the job, nose under the tent, get into SAC and go, which I did. Sounds like it sounds like a really good plan there. Uh, first of all, I want to say uh, hoorah, CBs. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I'm a Naval Reservist and I'm actually assigned to Naval Mobile Construction Battalion 2-2 right now. Way to go. Yes. And and we often go out to Oxnard to Port Wainimi. And I have making that up. And I have stayed in those barracks at Point Magoo. <laughs> when we went out there in 43 and I was 10 years old, it was mud flats. So, yep. so the, the 101st put up Quonset huts and that's where they stayed. And then we stayed in Quonset huts in Oxnard. We lived out in the country. I went to a one room schoolhouse. Now, the commander, to go back a bit, of the 101st during the war was a man named Biederman. Commander Biederman ran a large construction company in Chicago. In fact, you can Google his name today and the Biederman name will come up. Well, he was the type of commander that everyone wanted to have, but 
Very few did. He came with a lot of money and a lot of interest and a lot of great support for his sailors and all of his seamen. If there was anything that the, the battalion needed that the government, for whatever reasons, couldn't get, he would go buy it. And he would be sure that it was made available to, to the 101st. He did that throughout the entire war. And uh, my dad never forgot it. And I can assure you, I haven't either by relaying this story to you. It was quite exceptional. Okay. Now, uh, we're coming back into your, your history there. Um Looking at, you know, bio, and, and you and I have talked many, many times, uh, but how did you get to Creighton University in Omaha? Yeah. SAC headquarters is in Omaha. Now, were you were you assigned to SAC headquarters at the time and then one guy yes. your master's? Oh, okay. Okay. Yes, you bet. Well, that's well, the I one knew, guy. I knew, was early, the, I knew early on yeah. that, that education was a very important part of being a successful officer in the Air Force, certainly within SEC. So I made it a point of doing all of these schools by correspondence as fast as I could. Having done all of that, at least it was on the record, but it didn't stop the board from sending people uh, to various schools. I took advantage of the opportunity to start at Creighton Graduate School when I was first assigned uh, headquarters, Zach. I think it was 1960. And I went to night school, you know, took a class or two each semester because it was very demanding. Yeah, you know, when we look at just your just your history for school, it's it's obvious, General Doyle, that you place a very high premium on education. I mean, you not yes. only have your master's degree in history from Creighton University, you also completed uh, Air Command and Staff College as well as Industrial College of the yes. Armed Forces. I mean, really, when you think about the fact you graduated uh, from USC in 1955, your schooling was still going on well after that, 20 years after that. That's right. When you when you look back on and, and you think about the military and strategic air command and, and your history and your time and you, and you think about, you know, young people that are thinking about entering into service, do you I mean, obviously, everybody's stories and paths will be different yes. but do you still to this day feel like for a lot of folks especially that those that will be having a career in the military that that figuring out a way to have that ongoing education do you still place that that high a premium on it i certainly do and i've had occasion to talk to rotc cadets here in omaha at uno and creighton and i have made that point Always pay attention to uh, furthering your your own education. Every opportunity you should take. Uh, and I guess that might bring me to a point, you know, maybe you're going to ask me, but people often wonder, what, what are high points in your career? What things that you're especially pleased about having done? And I'll tell you what, if not number one, it is really close to it. I had decided when I was a fairly young officer and I discovered how our enlisted people uh, differing from officers needed to go through a testing program for promotion. Mm -hmm. And I thought, geez, that's really interesting and it's challenging because when do they study? Well, how do they get ready for this? And I said to myself, I remember maybe as a major, if I'm ever in a position of seniority where I can do something to help this along, I'm going to do it. So we fast forward to when I'm the Sakai in guy, and finally I was in that position. And I had thought about this all these years. And so we had two senior chiefs, one for Sakai in and the other for the 544th Intelligence Wing. And I had them in the office and with my deputy, Colonel Jim Root. And I said, what we need to, what I'd like to do is to set up a system whereby we know exactly who our young enlisted people are. They're all NCOs, who they are, when they are scheduled to be tested, what the dates are, and then we're going to figure out a way to get them ready to succeed. And I want you and the other chiefs, we had several chiefs, to noodle this problem, come back and let's talk about how we're going to do it. 
Well, you know, somebody said, well, this has to be illegal. And I says, no, it's only illegal if somebody says it is. And no one has said it is, so we'll do it. And we'll see what happens. So the end of this story is that we did set up a system. And it was kind of outside the general rules or the road. Whereby each organization would identify its staffs and techs. Man, those people who were eligible for promotion but needed to be tested, who they were, what their dates and ranks were, when they were due for testing, whether it was their first test, second test, third test. And suddenly we had a matrix of all of these people and say, now what are we going to do? Okay, well, I got the colonels together and says, what we want to do is we want to establish a period of time before these people test, because we know exactly when they're scheduled to test. And we want to give them the opportunity to take an afternoon a week or something like that, go to the base library and do their studying for that test. Anybody that screws this up, it's all over for everybody. Let's see if we can make it happen. And, you know, and we did. And we did. The end of the story is that over a period of about a year, year and a half, Suddenly, our SAC intelligence NCO promotion rates really seemed to blossom. It was extraordinary. How did that happen? Well, it happened because we paid attention to making it happen. And once we gave the opportunity to these very, very competent and capable NCOs to succeed, and we helped them succeed, they were all for it. Well, it seems like... It seems like that through all the time that you spent with all the studying that you did and the, and the training that they kind of helped create this this monster, for lack of a better term. I mean, your strategic and critical thinking. I mean, that that's really what you're outlining here. That was a, a plan that you put in place to develop people. Right. And it worked. Yeah. Okay, that's okay. it. <laughs> well, and it's, we're, we're not done yet. So well, I was saying that, that definitely sets the stage for us because uh, I was reading that story there. You know, you're talking about that you see an issue and you want to take initiative to address it and to better the, the command. Uh, and so that kind of jumps us into, uh, from what we understand, you were there for the first year of the Joint Strategic Target Planning Staff. That's right. How did, how did that develop and how did it, I guess, grow uh, within that first year? Well, in the years prior to that, this being in the 50s, uh, SAC really was the major command that had committed forces to a national war plan. The Navy had also committed some forces, but they tended to be airplanes flying off of carriers. At the same time, Admiral Rickover was starting to produce fleet ballistic missile submarines. So the makeup of strategic nuclear forces in the United States was starting to change. Well, there was a major exercise, a paper exercise done, uh, exercising one of these plans with all of these component parts. It was a disaster. People were just running into each other. It was a mess. And that's because there was no single place where these plans were brought together, where they were deconflicted, and where they were done in a meaningful, intelligent way, responsive to objectives and strategy. And that needed to be fixed. Well, when President Eisenhower got that briefing, he said, you know, we can fix this and we'll fix it right now. I'm going to set up a new joint organization. We'll put it at SAC headquarters. We'll call it the Joint Strategic Target Planning Staff. And uh, we'll have the Navy involved and we'll have uh, foreign countries that want to contribute forces to this new strategic nuclear planning effort that we're going to do. Well, he did that. He set it up. And we were all amazed when the plan was that this thing was going to kick off. It seems to me it was August 15th of uh, 1960, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And we were all betting who's going to show up. You know, will the Navy show up? We certainly thought they would. But who knew? Uh, It was all different. So in order for that to happen, we had 
a call that was overseen by the Joint Chiefs of Staff to start with. And it was decision was that the director of this new joint staff would wear two hats. His first hat would be the commander in chief of SAC. And his second hat would be the director of strategic target planning. And because the Navy was starting to come on strong, it was decided that his deputy strategic nuclear guy would be an, a vice admiral, a three-star admiral. So they needed more people involved to make this happen. And most of them were intelligence people and computer people. So a number of those billets were turned into joint hat billets. Mine was one of them, for example. So I, I was assigned to SAC intelligence and I was being credit for filling a billet in JSDPS. And that counted for joint service, by the way, in terms of the Air Force. So the time came to get this all set up. And sure enough, people showed up. Uh, the Brits contributed quite a bit. They had their airplanes. Uh, surprisingly, the French sent a couple of uh, officers too here often. I remember when we went out to base ops to look at the airplane that the new three-star admiral had just flown in on, and on the tail of the airplane, it was painted JSTPA. We said, what is a JSTPA? Somebody said, well, that's a Joint Strategic Target Planning Agency. Someone said, oh, no, that's not, because only Congress gets to approve an agency. They didn't approve this one. And that day, the A was painted over and an S was painted on. And suddenly, we had a Joint Strategic Target Planning staff, just like magic. <laughs> meanwhile, meanwhile, the French, couple of French officers showed up, and the French had their own triad, as few few missiles, a couple of carriers, some airplanes. Well, General de Gaulle shortly, I mean shortly, found out that his military had committed these few French forces to this new American-driven PSYOP, Single Integrated Operational mm -hmm. Plan. He pulled those French officers out of here so fast, they were gone like in a matter of hours once he found out, and they never returned. So mm -hmm. to this day, the French have their own private uh, national strategic target planning staff, what it is, who knows. It was called the Force to Frap back then. It's called something else now. So in any event, that's how all this came to be. And people, the services, the Air Force, uh, the Navy, and uh, the Brits, and whoever else was committing forces, needed to commit to the whole planning process, which meant deconfliction, targeting conf conflicts, all of the rest of that stuff, get it ironed out so that at the end of the planning cycle, we had one single national nuclear war plan called a PSYOP. Is that good? <laughs> this is this is all good. I do have a question, though, going back to your journey. And if I'm following the timeline right, you were with Strategic Air Command uh, through or at, at, I should say at SAC headquarters through October of 1967. And we'll kind of get into the time that, you know, where, where you had moved on after that. But you returned to SAC headquarters in 1977. And from my question is for you did you notice any changes you know with any organization with any business any group there's always there's always change and i was just curious what what struck you after that that 10 years that felt different when you would come back to sac headquarters i think the discipline was greater i think the sensitivity to uh, national concerns over nuclear matters was stronger and, the, and and at least in SAC, there was no doubt whatsoever. We knew what the mission was. We understood the importance of it. And every day was being an active part of making that work. Deterrence was always the answer. And whatever it took to enforce, to make it even better, we all worked to do. And I saw that across the board. And that was from our newest youngest enlisted people to the oldest broken down two stars like me. 
It was, now, it was absolutely wonderful, but it was different than the rest of the Air Force. Oh, it, it was. It was just just the studying the history of it and talking to uh, all the past veterans that I've met within that were in SEC. Uh, you can tell it was very, very different. Um, I just I'm going to jump in here um, kind of in the middle of this. Uh, you had a, a tour over in Vietnam. Yep. Yes. Uh, OK. And you were with Mac V there. But there's yes. also uh, I think it's after this is when you got involved with the. Uh, Soviet affairs. Uh, can you kind of talk about, I guess, the mission you had in Vietnam with MACV and then how you transitioned uh, into Soviet affairs? In 1966, 67, we were really ramping up in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And part of the ramping up process involved expanding intelligence capabilities in country. Well, if you were looking for a place where there were a lot of intelligence people, uh, you'd come to SAC because we had a lot of intelligence people and suddenly the operation was called Operation Pipeline, as I recall. Uh, personnel folks in Washington started to pick off intelligence people from here at Offutt and away we'd go to Vietnam to do various jobs. Well, I wanted to be part of that, so I said, I'm ready to go. And so the time came and I had orders to go to MACV, military Assistance Command Vietnam, B-52 support. I was a B-52 targeting officer in Vietnam, and that's what my job was. So, you know, while I spent 34 years active duty, I figured only two of those were not in SAC or related to SAC, like 32 years were part of SAC one way or another. And this was part of it. So my job in Vietnam was to travel around and to help the Army and Marine guys on the ground understand how to order up B-52 supporting strikes in the Republic of Vietnam. And I did that uh, arriving in uh, October. So in late January, the Tet Offensive started. And let me just say here that we were not surprised by the Tet Offensive at all. Now, the American media was, but I can assure you that we were not. and We were ready for them. And that's why they lost heavily in the Tet Offensive. But within the Tet Offensive came the battle for Quezon. And I can tell you a short story about that that may be of some interest. General, I worked for a Marine, a Brigadier General named John Chason, a Harvard graduate and a brilliant guy. Well, one day he said to me, let's go see the boss. So he and I went to General Westmoreland. And General Westmoreland, we re reviewed for us the, what was happening at Quezon. And he made it clear we did not want Quezon to fall. And he said, I want you men to go figure out how to use B-52s to help that, you know, help them out up there, those Marines at Quezon. We said, yes, sir, and left. And so I went and got a haircut. I'm in the chair in the barber shop, and I'm thinking about this. And suddenly the light goes on. I get out of the chair. I go back to the office. I get on the secure phone. And I call Lieutenant Colonel Judd Smith in Guam. Now, Judd and I were had known each other here at SAC headquarters in the targeting shop. And he was now at Guam uh, supporting the B-52s. And I asked Judd, says, do the folks at Guam have earth-penetrating 500-pounders? He says, let me check. Why do you want to know? I says, because the real story is that the North Vietnamese are tunneling uh, in and around Quezon, which they had done at other places. And if we can figure out a way to cave in those tunnels, that ought to slow them down. He says, let me call you back. Minutes later, he called back and said, yes, we have them. I said, okay, give me a timeline. How long, how many hours from the time you get a go to first bomb on target? He said, told me whatever it was. Came, I went and told General Chason. He said, let's see Westmoreland. We went to see Westmoreland, told him that story. He said, do it. We came back out, and John Chason says, we need to find out how close we can come to the wire at Chason. <laughs> and I said, well, that's a good question, because the rule was three kilometers from friendlies. That's where the bombs had to be no closer than three kilometers. But that was clearly too far away from the wire. So we sent him, he sent a message to the commander up at Chason, uh, Marine 26. 26 Marines, as I recall. And he said, bring it as close as you want. Within a click, it'd be fine. I said, oh, my God. Really? He says, yeah. I says, to Chase on, I says, well, what are you going to do? He says, build the boxes to within a click 
of the wire and send them off and let's see what happens. Well, we did that. And the earth penetrating bombs dropped all around that place. And I was struck by the fact that long after the battle was over and resolved and the North had lost and we had still had Quezon, that the commander of Quezon publicly said the B-52s probably won that battle. And I'd like to think that maybe those earth-penetrating bombs had something to do with that. Certainly gave the North Vietnamese something to think about, at least those that were left. <laughs> that's my that's my story about <laughs> I want to I want to shift gears for a moment earlier today before we jumped on to, to record this podcast with you we moved our Avro Vulcan you, you talked about the British earlier we moved our Avro Vulcan bomber from the uh, back ramp into our restoration hangar which up until very recently was housing our EC-135 looking glass which has now been uh, restored and is sitting in, in hangar B uh, here at the museum I want to I want to shift to your time on the the EC-135. So going from one big aircraft to another, um, Brian has shared some stories that you have talked about with him. But just how did you how did you find yourself uh, a part of that looking glass program? The rule of the road for the Airborne Emergency Action Officer, the AEAO, was that he, that person had to be a line of the Air Force general officer assigned to the Strategic Air Command. So once anybody was promoted to brigadier that fit those bills, guess what? You made the looking glass roster. <laughs> that simple. So the people that flew looking, the generals that flew in the looking glass um, during the week were the generals assigned here to office. The generals outside of Offutt at the Air Division's numbered Air Forces, they had a roster where they would come in and they would fly the looking glass on the weekends. So that's how we covered seven days a week, 24 hours a day. So when I got, when I was uh, selected for Brigadier, for example, at the time, my job, I, I was JSTPS, single hat only, JSTPS. That wasn't SAC. I was the head of the target list. So I was not qualified to fly the looking glass because I was not in SAC. I had to get the job as the SAC I am in a SAC billet to suddenly qualify to fly on the looking glass. That explains why, for example, the SAC doctor, who was a general, the SAC lawyer, who was a general, did not fly on the looking glass as AEAO because they were not line of the Air Force officers. Does that answer that one? It absolutely <laughs> does. And, and Brian, I know that um, you had a question when you were talking about coverage you know, during the week, on the weekend, but you actually had a story that you were sharing with me about coverage for... Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, and, and like I said, I, I had the privilege of... Uh, knowing General Doyle for quite a while, uh, talking with him quite often. And he did share, uh, I think, a very special story that not only talks about the camaraderie within SAC among the generals, but also the dedication that they have to each other. Uh, sir, it's, it's a story about... Uh, when you were kind of on the, the lower end of the totem pole and you were getting uh, put on, a, I, I believe, a flight uh, around the Christmas holiday and someone stepped up to kind of take your spot there. Yep. Yep. <clears throat> well, let me explain first how that happened. The AEAO roster to fly the looking glass was a duty roster. If you think of it as a duty roster, you'll understand how this all worked. So at the beginning of each quarter, the chief of staff's office, and this would be um, for the generals assigned here to often when there was a lot of us, the chief of staff's office would, would start circulating a, uh, a, a roster beginning with the junior officer, that's not right, beginning with the senior officer, mm -hmm. and he would go through and he would pick those dates that he wanted to fly. And we had a number. I think it was something like 16 a quarter. And you had to pick those 16 dates. 
Well, you also had had travel, you had TDY, maybe you even had a leave schedule, you had whatever, but you had to play all of that in. So the execs tended to squabble and get all that stuff <laughs> sorted out. But I would look at that roster that would come around and you'd write your name in, what dates you wanted. And as it progressed up the list, you know, you would end up with the junior, the junior <laughs> general getting to fill in whatever was left. And that's kind of how that worked. So there was no magic to it. It was all rules of the road. So when things happened uh, that precluded flying, you had to get someone else to fly for you. And the execs would help make that happen. Well, it was Christmas time. Uh, I was fairly junior. And I ended up with uh, the Christmas Eve uh, flight and had young children at the time. So living on the row, General's row, and two doors down was the vice commander and chief general, Lieutenant General George Miller. And, uh, and he called and said, what if I take that Christmas Eve flight so that you can be at home, take care of the, uh, the kids and packages and all that. And I thought that was great because his family had grown. So in any event, he flew that mission for me. And it was over, I don't know, midnight, whatever. And so I went out in the alley and I still had my flight suit on, I think. And I went out in the alley and waited for his car to come by, bringing him home. And uh, here comes the car. It's like midnight. And I stand there by myself and I salute. He returns the salute and stops the car and we shake hands and wish each other a Merry Christmas and we each went home. Uh, that was kind of nice, I think. What do you think? <laughs> it sounds amazing. I mean, you know, it, it's it's interesting to, to hear you talk about all of this because you just you strike me uh, major is just being such a humble and approachable man and just uh, all your service to to our country i mean it's it's really staggering and then when you look at your list of of military decorations and, and awards distinguished service medal defense uh, superior service medal uh, legion of merit with oakley cluster i mean it goes on and on and on and i was kind of curious as i was going through your biography and and thinking about all of the the service and the work that you have done is there any one of those awards that stands out or means more to you than another the last one. That the very, was the, uh, just, that I mean, the, just in general, just the last one you received, or is it was it th that particular one? No, I think it was it was both. It was the uh, CIA one. National, you, Intelligence, you, National Intelligence Distinguished Service Medal. Yeah, now, there's, a, there's a story to this, though. There's always a story. Right, uh, But first, let me say, with regards to all of these awards, and I've, I've been blessed over the decades to receive a lot of accolades and a lot of awards. And let me tell you, it's always easy for that sort of thing to happen so long as you're working with really great people. Mm -hmm. And in every, in every single one of these cases that I've been recognized for doing whatever, around below and above and beside always has been really outstanding people. And, you know, life is easy when that's the environment you live in. And, and it just was. So in any event, I retired 1989. And we had a meeting here at Offutt of senior military intelligence officers, which were Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine guys, all flags, of representing their various services. And at that, at that meeting, uh, I was given a piece of paper by a friend of mine, General Ed Hines, and uh, said, uh, here's an award from CIA. And it was a piece of paper. Wait a minute. It was, yeah, it was a piece of paper and, and a medal, but it didn't say anything on it. And I, and I didn't pay any attention to it. So 25 years passed. For some reason or another, on my shadow box, someone had put that medal. And I would look at that every now and again. I'd say, geez, I wonder what that is. 
And I didn't know. So I asked some people and nobody knew. And then finally, I asked my wife, Jackie, to Google it and see if she could see what it is. And she did. And sure enough, there it was, CIA Distinguished Intelligence uh, National Defense Service Medal. I thought, well, that's interesting. I don't know what this is or why I have it. <laughs> and so I called a friend and said, see if there's a CIA rep still here at Stratcom and did. And this very accommodating uh, lady returned my call. One thing led to another. And she said, and this is recently now, she said, you know what? This is very important. <laughs> I said, well, I don't know what it is. She says, well, let me find out for you. National Intelligence Distinguished Service Medal. So she called the boys and girls at McLean, where CIA is. They had no record of it. They didn't know. Maybe I made it up. Well, she didn't buy that. So time passed, and she called the Historical Records Department at CIA. And sure enough, there it was. She says, why don't we present it to you? I said, what do you want to do that? She said, how about your wedding room? I said, great. <laughs> Years ago. That was two years ago. I said, sounds great to me. So she got the whole package and told the told the neighbors, and we had an award presentation in my living room two years ago for this CIA national intelligence. And that's a big deal. It's not a little deal. It's a big deal. The uh, what it says here for the national, it's normally awarded on a very selective basis. It's awarded for distinguished meritorious service or achievement to the U.S. in a duty of great responsibility within the intelligence community, the outstanding accomplishments of which directly benefits the interests of the U.S. and constitutes a major contribution to the foreign intelligence or counterintelligence mission of the intelligence staff requires executive director approval. So I'm proud of that. So there. Well, you should, you should be, and with considering all of the 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 awards and uh, and decorations that you have earned, um, it, it's good that you have a record and and uh, an understanding of everyone that that you received. Uh, Major Doyle, I had or General Doyle, I had one one other if question. If you're working for finance, I'm going to get that fixed. <laughs> <laughs> i uh i had i had one more question for you here today before we wrap up and i know this is probably a tough one but we we like to ask and that is when you look back on your time uh, serving this country in strategic air command your your all of the education um everything that you did is there is there a time is there a moment it was there an event that that you recall fondly that you feel like as as best you can kind of encapsulates your time serving our country yes want to know what it is of course I do. That's why I asked, sir. The Soviet Awareness Program. Talk to us about the Soviet Awareness Program. I had returned from Vietnam. I thought I was going to language school to be an assistant air attaché in Moscow, but a friend of mine, General Jim Annie, changed my orders. Uh, instead, I was assigned to the Pentagon to the targeting shop. And so from Vietnam, I was to Washington, where, by the way, I ended up serving for nine years. Couldn't seem to get that right. Kept, wouldn't, wouldn't let me go. So in any event, one thing leads to another, and I end up, I'm the exec to General George Keegan, who's the head of Air Force Intelligence. Uh, I'm a I'm a major serving in a full colonel's billet for some reason. And the event that happened was really interesting. General Jones was the commander of Yukon. Uh, he was sick Yukon. And he returned to the Pentagon to be the chief staff. At one of the early meetings that he had with his staff, he told General Keegan that he had been very disappointed during his tour in Europe where he would travel the flight line and he would ask people on the flight line, why are you there? And he couldn't get a good answer. And he told General Keegan, he says, look, I want to have a program, something set up where we can start 
educating and training our people as to why they're there. It's called the Soviets. Well, people had forgotten that General Jones in his earlier life was General LeMay's pilot. And he had grown up with General LeMay and he knew all about that. So in any event, General Keegan returns from that meeting and has the intelligence staff meeting, which as his exec, I'm sitting there listening to this. He goes through the whole thing and says, I would like somebody to come up with some ideas and talk to me. A week passes, nothing. Two week passes, nothing. And he starts, Keegan starts mumbling about, I'm not hearing anything from anybody. Well, he was scheduled to go to an attache conference in Panama. I had been thinking about what General Jones wanted. And I asked Keegan, I said, can I go with you to this Panama conference? He said, sure. So we're flying commercially down to Miami. And I lay on General Keegan. I figured I've got him trapped now. And I lay on to him my plan for how to build this Soviet, whatever it is. And I had it all written out. He looked at it and he said, do you think you can do that? I says, I can't as long as I have two things. He says, what's that? I said, your support and a card from the Air Force that says I can go buy whatever I need to buy. <laughs> he said, I'll get you the card and you have my support. But he says, you have to be careful about this because it can backfire. People find out what we're doing, particularly the news media, they won't like it. So I left. I, he gave me a credit card for the Air Force. I went out to the uh, Russian bookstore in Bethesda, started to subscribe to the whole raft of Russian newspapers like Red Star and Krasnaya Zvezda, his, uh, Civil Defense, Pravda, Trut. Uh, I bought books. I did all kinds of stuff. And then I moved to a little office where I started to, I said, I need to get people who can read Russian fluently so we can start selecting things to print. And uh, we had an organization in Belvoir with folks who happened to be Russian speakers. And so I asked one of them to come up and help, and he did. And so I started to cut things out and, and scotch tape them onto paper and put the English translation next to it. Because I figured, you know, we start printing and publishing this stuff and we put it out there and people aren't going to like it because it's not really friendly, you know. And our answer will be, look, if you don't like it, then tell us what we translated wrong. There it is. Russian and English. Well, we never heard a single word from anybody. So we started that. Uh, we ended up with about 30, 35 people. Uh, we went to the Air Force uh, Reserve program and surveyed that for Russian speakers. We found about 30 of them. We managed to get them all pulled from whatever they were doing to come to work for this Soviet awareness program. We ended up publishing books by the government printing office. We ended up hosting conferences. Uh, General Jones directed that we now have this as a required meeting for all new brigadier generals in the Air Force, which we did. We traveled around the country and overseas with our briefings, Soviet awareness briefings. And so that was very, very successful and, and very, uh, we think, very useful and very worthwhile. And it set a bench note for, you know, if you want to translate, take the time to translate what people are saying. You'd be amazed at what, uh, at what you find out. The first book that we that we translated was titled Nastuplenia. And Nastuplenia in Russian is the offensive. And that was pretty interesting in and of itself. So that program was very successful. And we stayed with it for a couple of years. And I got a couple of other promotions, one off to ICAF, and finally then went back to SAC. So Soviet Awareness Program was a high point, I think. You know, just listening listening to you uh, speak today, uh, General Doyle, I, I would say that if somebody had to sum you up in a, in a in a quick sentence, I would say he's a guy who gets things done. <laughs> well, we hope so. Yeah, well, absolutely. It's easy to do when you have a lot of good people to help you do it. Yeah. And, you know, and I, and I appreciate you saying that. And I think all great leaders um, will will make that uh, make that clear to people is that, you know, having a team around you and having people um, that you can empower to be good leaders yeah. is is what makes someone a great leader. I'd, uh, like to I'd like to finish with a word or two about the looking glass. We mentioned what it takes to get on it. 
Yeah, but absolutely. Because I was because I was here for so darn long. That meant I get to fly a lot. By the time it was over, I had flown 339 missions. So as it stands today, uh, I'm number two in the history of uh, AEOs flying the looking glass. And that's because most general officers were smart enough to come in here, do their job and get out. (laughs) But but, but not me. Nope, nope. Stay right here. And so 339 is a lot. Uh, the number one uh, in California, General, geez, I forget his name. He had close to 900, as I recall. Oh, geez. Yeah. And then, and then Doyle comes in at 339, and after that is also someone with very few. So I'm, I'm, the, senior, I'm the number one guy right now, I think, AEAO living. Little looking glass AEAOs. Well, I just want to say that to say that because that was a very important mission. Well, and we appreciate you taking the time today to share all of these stories. Um, and, you know, I hope that at some point we can even uh, circle back and have you on again to to share even more, because I know that there's a lot more uh, wisdom and, and stories that you can impart. Um, and we just appreciate the fact that you were able to take some time with us today. Thank you very much. You're very kind and I appreciate the opportunity to do it. So y'all take care. You're doing God's work. Thank you very much. Major General William Doyle Jr., our guest today on the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. Again, sir, thank you for your time. That'll do it for us. A reminder again to please subscribe to our podcast. Uh, We don't don't ever want you to miss an episode. Also, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You can follow us, SAC Museum, as well as our website where you can find all of our podcast episodes, sacmuseum.org. That'll do it for us. Thank you so much for listening. Take Care. This has been the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. Learn more about events, programs, and exhibits at the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum at sacmuseum.org.